Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. This is Dan Moore, and today my guest is Dr. Jermaine Bear. No, it's not like the bear you might run into in the woods. It's B-O-E-R. And Jermaine was one of my professors when I got my master's degree in business from Vanderbilt's Owen Graduate School of Management. He was a professor of accounting. In fact, one of the finest accounting professors ever to walk through the halls of the Owen School. Eventually, as a title professor emeritus, he still stayed involved with students and along the way was a founder and director of the Owen Center for Entrepreneurship. He's got an amazing life story, great background, and he's going to share some lessons that come from advising and being around entrepreneurs for literally decades. So, Jermaine, welcome so much to the Action Catalyst. Thank you, Dan. That was a very flattering introduction there. Well, I started life as a poor, barefoot country boy. We lived on a dirt road. We grew most of our own food. And I was the oldest child. So as soon as I got big enough to do chores, I was doing chores. We had, as you would expect, no indoor plumbing, no electricity. So when I started school, most of my homework I did with an Aladdin kerosene lamp. And when I moved to Nashville, I was really excited to see the Aladdin company is still here. But that's how I grew up. And I went, to, I actually got to go to high school and neither one of my parents were able to go to high school. So I went to high school. Then I went to Austin, Texas, and I got a job as a delivery boy for an auto parts company. And I would deliver parts to various businesses around town. And after about nine months of that, I said, I really think I want to do something else the rest of my life. And so I started noodling on, well, what can I do? And I had an uncle who had uh, served in the U.S. Army in the Second World War, and he went to college and studied chemistry. And I said, maybe I ought to look at that. So I went to a local college there and applied, and I got in. And the first semester, it didn't take me very long to realize I had no background for studying chemistry. I had to learn math and chemistry. And if you don't know anything about it, it's not that easy. And besides, I was incredibly green and had no idea how to study. So the one thing that kept me from flunking out in the first semester was I had a math professor who was extremely precise in everything he did. I mean, when he wrote on the blackboard, I mean, it was very, very well done. And on the final exam, there was a question where he gave us a triangle and he told us how long two of the sides were. He told us what the angle was where the two came together. And as anybody who knows anything about math, that's a trigonometry question. I have no idea how to answer it. 
So I sat there and I looked at it and I took my slide room. I said, okay, that one is 1.8. This one is 1.4. So I think the one down here is about 0.6. And I lost two points for not showing my calculations. And this was a five-hour course. If I hadn't gotten that question right, I would have flunked out. But that let me keep going. And I changed after that to uh, studying uh business and the first semester I had an accounting class and I thought that was pretty fun. That was interesting. So I just started focusing my efforts on uh, accounting. Now, as I said, I was a poor country boy. I couldn't afford to go to school to have my parents pay for it. They, they had six other kids they were taking care of. I was the oldest one. <clears throat> so I got a job working 20 hours a week for the Texas Department of Agriculture in their seed laboratory. And since I'd grown up in the country, you know, I sort of knew what seeds were. And then I found a, a newspaper story one day telling about a gentleman there who had set up a loan fund for Texas students who needed help going to college. And so I called up the office went down there, and I think I was the first person who came in and, and went to talk to somebody about it. I got a loan to cover my tuition. So that let me go all the way through my uh, my undergraduate degree. And as I got near the end of my undergraduate degree, you know, I had to either go out and get a job or uh, do something else. And one of my friends there at the school, who was uh, a year ahead of me, had uh, said something about, why don't you go get a master's degree? And I said, well, that might be fun. So I applied at Texas Tech, which is out in Lubbock, Texas. And if any of you have ever been to Lubbock, Texas, it's uh, as different from Tennessee as mm -hmm. possible. It's perfectly flat. So I got a master's degree there. And to get the master's degree, I had to run what we called accounting labs. That's uh, basically you would take your class and then you'd go to the so-called lab and you work accounting problems. And so I had to help the students with that. And occasionally I'd have to give a little lecture. And then in my last uh, semester there, they had me actually teaching a class. And I decided, gee, this is kind of fun. I like this. And so then I uh, went and got a Ph.D. at LSU in Baton Rouge, focused on accounting, and that's when my academic career took off is when I graduated from there. I went back to Texas Tech, worked there for a couple of years. Then I spent a year in Chicago with Arthur Anderson when they were a blue-chip accounting firm, they no longer exist. But at that time, they were considered one of the best. Uh, and so I got to spend a year working with them. Then I went back to uh, Texas Tech for a year, and a friend of mine called me up shortly after I got back to uh, Lubbock and said, uh, I'm working in New York City for the American Institute of CPAs, and there's this organization that focuses on uh, management accounting, and they are looking for somebody to help them with their education courses. And he said, uh, why don't you look at it? And so I did, and I ended up uh, going to New York City for two years 
and running around the country teaching classes on like how to use financial accounting data to help you run your business uh, by providing the right information to people within the company. And after that, I went to Oklahoma State, spent seven years there, and then came to Vanderbilt, where I've been ever since. And they'll have to carry me out feet first to get me to leave Nashville. (laughs) Sounds great. And it has been, uh, I believe, just over 40 years with your involvement at Vanderbilt. Yeah, actually, it's 41 uh, this past August. Well, that is amazing. Uh, One of the things that that I wanted to share, and some of our listeners may feel the same way, although I was a pretty good student and undergraduate and feel like I'm a good learner, I had a phobia about accounting. Uh, I was so scared of it because I took an accounting course as an undergrad and I took it pass-fail, the only class I did pass-fail, and I only passed out of the grace of the teaching assistant because I was a graduating senior and needed that one. And I was so scared before I started my master's program that I took two night school courses in financial management accounting and was still incredibly apprehensive. One of the things that you shared at our opening orientation that really stuck with me, you said, what is the purpose of an accounting system? And I started having a panic attack. A few of the people in the class that were accounting background or finance background started giving some fancy answers. And you said, no, 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 no. Let me just simplify this. The reason you have an accounting system is to help you make more money. There's no other reason to have it. And all of a sudden, I just calmed down, relaxed. And it's like, ah, there we go. It's not about the technical details. Somebody else is probably going to be better at that than I will be anyway. But this is a way that we can help our business be more successful, make more money. It's the language of business. So I just want to thank you over the years. Do you still feel that way about accounting systems? Uh, yes. Whenever I talk about accounting, in fact, in a, about a month, I will be teaching in a, a three-day program we have here on financial accounting, well, finance and accounting for managers who don't have any kind of an accounting background. And I do my managerial accounting, and that's that's the way I start off talking about it is by asking people, how do you see your system helping you make more money in your company? And most of them haven't thought about it that way. But what if you use it as a tool to enhance your profits, it's very, very powerful. And there's a very simple way to do this, and not too many people do this. And I think the reason they don't is to set it up is not going to be real simple because uh, what it requires you to do is really look at your organization and say, who is making the critical decisions in my company? The technique that I'm talking about is called responsibility accounting. And in its purest form, what you do is you take every expense and every revenue item, and you may do the same thing with assets, but you always take revenue and expense and you say, who makes each one of these go up or down with the decisions that they make? That's the fundamental question you ask. And then if you say, well, John over here is the one who uh, makes uh, revenue go up and down because he's our salesperson. Well, then you give John financial information about what's happening with sales. And that way he can see if sales go up or if they go down and you can give uh, 
the quicker the feedback on things like that, the better it works. And the same thing is true with expenses. My father-in-law worked in an oil refinery in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It was probably at that time one of the biggest refineries in the U.S. And he ran all of the maintenance. The people who actually ran the refinery at that time were less than 100 people. The people working in maintenance was over 800 because it wasn't that difficult to run the refinery, but they had so much equipment and it had to be in perfect condition to keep from blowing up and killing a bunch of people. So he was in charge of the maintenance. And when computers came along, he said, we started working on setting up a system where we could track who was using the supplies from our uh, supply room so that we could then eventually put in a budget to say, okay, this is your budget allowance on your expenses. And as they were doing this, they would gradually start giving information to people just to debug the system they were creating. And after uh, a few months, they noticed that the usage of material was dropping. And they said, that's weird. We haven't put in any kind of a budget. So they went out and started talking to the people who were managing the crews. And they said, well, said what we used to do when we were going to do maintenance on one of these pressure vessels is we take a blowtorch, we cut off all the bolts because that was a quick way to get inside and then fix it. And then we'll go down to the supply room and, and get 20 more bolts and bring them back and put them in. When we saw that each one of those bolts cost 50 bucks, we said, you know, this doesn't make any sense. So they used a wrench to unscrew each one of them. And they did that only because they finally could see what they were doing to the expenses for the refinery. So when you let people see what they do to your expenses and your revenues, many times they take the right actions without you ever telling them to. Uh, and I had students in my executive MBA program who tried this and got similar results. One of my students who ran his own company, it was a fairly small one, after we talked about this, he went back, implemented this in his company, and he said, you know, this is the first time I've been able to spend my efforts on running the company instead of trying to watch all of my expenses because I've got people in my company now watching these and they let me know if something goes wrong. And in a larger company, Coke Industries uses some variation of this thing. Uh, and what you do in, in a larger company is, in effect, put somebody's name next to every one of these expenses and revenues. So if any one of them goes a little crazy, you know exactly who to talk to, and it doesn't take you long to figure out what's going on. So that's the gist of how to use financial account or how to use your accounting system to help increase your profits. And I like simple approaches. One approach is called uh, checkbook accounting. And I talked to a guy who was running a plant in Colorado. I think they had like 300 employees. And he said he ran the whole company using what I'd call checkbook accounting. And the way that works is he would take every unit in the company and 
meet with the person running it and say, okay, how much do you think you're going to need to spend next month to run your piece of the business? Give me a number. And so he would take that number. He would put it on a flip chart and say, okay, that's the balance in your checkbook. Then every time that unit manager would spend money or commit to spend money, he would write it on the flip chart, subtract it from the old balance and show the new balance remaining. Well, he did that with every part of the of the uh, plant. And he said what this system did was, in effect, make everybody keep thinking about the future instead of explaining why they didn't hit the budget in the past, because they could see when it was getting down low. And if they didn't think they had enough to uh, last till the end of the month, he said, they come see me right away. So he would get like advanced warning on what's going on in a so-called traditional system. You get a budget report after the month is over, and then you're supposed to explain why things didn't work. Here, as soon as it looks like they won't work, somebody's going to tell you. Right. And checkbook accounting is a great name because most everybody's familiar with that concept. This is just applying it to a business mm-hmm. of almost any height. Well, in this guy, what I thought was interesting was that was his system for the whole place. Right. I mean, he had the regular accounting numbers, but this is how he really managed it. And I said, hmm, that's pretty, that's pretty clever. Well, and just like responsibility accounting, it's based upon an assumption that the normal person in a, in a business or an organization really wants to do a good job. They want the business to succeed. And when yeah. you give them some responsibility and accountability, the good people, the ones you build with, will always rise to that occasion and appreciate that. Yeah, they well, and see, if you select the things that they can influence, they know exactly what's going on with mm-hmm. them. And then if you want to do some projections for the next year, they probably can give you some really good insights into what's going to happen with expenses because they've been watching the ones that they influence. And they are by far the closest to it. So it gives them ownership yeah. and lets the the head of the organization focus on bigger picture issues. Well, I right. think that's fantastic. You've had a long career guiding entrepreneurs as well as, as a consultant, as an advisor, as a teacher with the Owen Center for Entrepreneurship and, and one of the, the latest ventures, which is called the Wondery. Uh, I think that is a multidisciplinary mm-hmm. approach toward business startups that involves the engineering program, probably the biomedical program, of course, the business program. Am I characterizing that correctly? Uh, it's well, it's only I think it's maybe two years old now, so it's still evolving. And also, it's very different from the way Vanderbilt has always operated because we've always operated by making each school look out for itself. Now, that's, that's kind of loosely what do we do, and so they're supposed to balance their own budget, come up with programs they can do, and they mostly focus on their own little world. Like the management school is supposed to be really good at training people in management and we don't worry about what they do in law or anything else. Well, the Wondery is not hooked to any school. It's a separate unit and it works with every school in the university. And right now, uh, we just got a gift from one of our alums who's uh, been a successful entrepreneur. And so we've hired somebody who's working for us. And we're going to start working with the Wondery to connect to engineering students 
to try to get engineering students to work with our MBA students because the engineers, they make things. Our students know how to build companies. But the engineers, that's not what their expertise is. So if we can put them together, we think we can really do some uh, some interesting mm-hmm. things. Uh, so I think that's going to be uh, very exciting to see how this thing uh, plays out uh, for the university. Uh, and the fellow who's running it is doing a really good job. He's uh, an excellent networker. When he came here, he gave a report to the advisory board for our uh, tech transfer office two months after he got here. And he said, uh, I've already had meetings with over 200 people in Nashville. And my uh, comment to myself was, you know, he's the only guy at Vanderbilt who knows more people in Nashville (laughs) than I do. And I mean, he's really good because Vanderbilt is... I think evolving in a really good direction. We, when I came here, basically we didn't pay much attention to the local community. Now that's not true anymore. We've got uh, a much younger group of people running the place. They're much more interested in connecting with what's going on in this part of the world. So I don't think the, uh, disconnect between the community and the university is going to last a whole lot longer because already we're starting to get people come over to the uh, the Wondery like uh, they've got a program where they will work with established companies. I think Accenture had a project over there and what they had is a group of engineering students who were working on some kind of a problem that they were trying to, to solve and then they had teams from other parts of the university also involved in the project. And that's where I think that's going to really have a big impact. Uh, so I'm very optimistic about what that's going to and do. I think one of the transfers of that experience to the people that have business organizations is to avoid the silos. Silos are sort of fun in a way because you're with yep. people that do what you do. But the only way to really move forward is to break down the walls mm-hmm. of those silos and get people from different functions in yeah. the same room working in the same direction. Yeah. In business now, I think that's really critical because it's, uh, see, it used to be if you were an accountant, all you did was accounting. And now they've got financial people who have to work with everybody and bring their expertise to whatever the other people in the company are doing. And so there's a lot more interplay among all of the uh, the parts of the business to, to make it because the world's changing so fast. You can't committee to study something and then come up with recommendations and then have another committee look at that, uh, you'll lose your opportunity if you go yeah, through all that very, process very now. Jermaine, based on many, many years of observing entrepreneurs, coaching them, guiding them, et cetera, I'm really curious about your observation about what causes some of them that may have really great ideas, they've got plenty of money, but they fail. And what causes others to succeed when they just seem to not have anything going for them? Really curious about any thoughts you have in that. Well, the the world of entrepreneurship is pretty messy because I don't think you can say there is one kind of person who's going to be a great entrepreneur. They, it, they're all different kinds. And there are certain characteristics uh, that I think uh, you can see in, in successful ones, uh, like uh, – 
I think uh, I always tell my students here, I said, entrepreneurship is really more of an attitude. It's how you look at the world. A lot of us walk around and all we see is, oh, God, you know, we've got a problem here and there's a problem here. And, uh, you know, I don't know who can do anything about it. Well, an entrepreneur's they don't see problems. They see opportunities. It's, oh, there's somebody who's doing something in a way that I could do a lot better. And if I did it better, I bet I could take uh, get a business up and going. Uh, and the other thing is persistence. Uh, a good entrepreneur has to be really persistent because there are ups and downs. Uh, I helped start a real small company before I came to Nashville. And looking back at it, I said, you know, we experienced everything these guys are doing here who are running big companies. And we were just a little bitty company, just three people. So we had a lot of the same kinds of things. At the beginning, you know exactly what your company is going to do. Well, a few months later, you've already changed because you find out that what you thought was going to happen is not what's happening. Uh, This little bitty company we started, we knew everybody was going to have to buy a lot of plastic bottles. So we stocked up on those suckers. When I left about three years later, we still had a bunch of them left over because we were wrong. The customers wanted something. Well, this was back in the days most of your listeners are not going to know what a, a camera is that uses film, but that's the way we did it. So we had a, a store that would sell photo supplies and would rent darkroom space to people so they could develop their pictures. Well, what we learned was lots of people want to develop their pictures, but they only do it once or twice a year. Well, that's not going to make your business go. And so eventually what we did is we switched to being a full service photo store focused on sophisticated amateurs, uh, which meant that uh, we dealt with the people who really like to get into it and play with it a lot. But that is not what we started with. And that's very, very common that what you start with is not uh, it's not where you're going to end up. Now, another thing about the way we started, which I think is great, extremely painful, but basically we started, we just borrowed money uh, and we didn't borrow very much because our wives probably would have wrung our necks if we had tried to. So we had to really pinch pennies. When we were starting, my two partners were artists, and we were dealing with a company called Kodak. I don't think they're around anymore, but and uh, so they would sell us a sign for our store real cheap, but then we had to, to install it. And so my two partners found some guy who would install it, and he's going to charge us a couple thousand bucks. And I said, we don't have that kind of money. There's no way we can spend that. And they said, well, you know, what are we going to do? I said, okay, let me look at this. So I got a ladder from home, came to the building where we were located, climbed up on the roof and found that somebody else had had a sign once. And there were connections, uh, I mean, anchors that I could tie to to uh, install a sign. So I said, okay. So I took some measurements bought a roll of cable for, I don't know, 10 or 15 bucks, 
bought a long pipe for another $5 and came back and hung the sign. Now, I had to spend another $30 to get a machine shop to give me a, a part that I needed. So instead of spending several thousand, we spent less than 100 bucks. That's what you have to do when you start a company. You've got to figure out ways to do things without spending money. And it's amazing what you can do. And what happens is desperation makes you start trying things. Uh, one of my uh, former students had a company here. He was in our executive MBA program, and I had him speak to one of my classes. And he came in on a Wednesday, and he said, started his talk by saying, well, I've got a $25,000 payroll due on Friday, and I have no idea where the money's coming from. Mm-hmm. Not got everybody's attention. And uh, what he told me was, he said, eventually – I realized I could solve any problem like this. So he said, I started sleeping well at night. And one of the things he would do is he provided a very high quality product to his customers. And when cash got really tight, he'd go to a customer or two and say, look, guys, I'm really in a bind here. Can you pay this bill a couple of weeks early for me? And they'd almost always do it. So, That's how he got through the tight times with cash. Another thing that I've seen several uh, instances of this where when you start your company, you don't go get investors to put money in. You go to your customers, the customers you're going to have. If you have a product that they really want, you can convince a lot of them to buy maybe a one-year supply in advance and you give them a nice discount but they, they give you all the cash up front. Then you own the whole company. You haven't given any of it away. And the thing that uh, that I think entrepreneurs need to really think about is as soon as you take outside money, it's not your company anymore. It's our company. And the longer you can go without taking outside money, the better off you are. Uh, so really pinching pennies, uh, My next door neighbor had a daughter uh, who was trying to get a company started. And he asked me if I would meet with her and help her look at how to do a business plan. So I sat down with her and the lady she was going to work with. They were going to jointly own this company. And I said, "Uh, why do you want a business plan? They said, well, we have to go get some money. I said, well, do either one of you own a house? They said, oh, yeah, we both do. I said, how about a second mortgage? I said, oh, we hadn't thought about that. I said, well, check into it. And I said, now, if you want to do a business plan, it's a good exercise to go through, but you don't have to have one unless, you know, you want to go through the exercise. And the next question was, how much should we spend on marketing? And I said, well, do you know who your customers are? And he said, oh, yeah, we know every one of them. I said, okay, how about a handwritten note to each one of them? So you spent 20 or 30 bucks, reach every one of your customers with a personal note. That's a heck of a lot better than spending a bunch of money on, quote, marketing, unquote. Right. So at the beginning, be real, real stingy. That makes so much sense. And when people take that mentality, they not only maintain control, 
but they do unusual things. The handwritten note is such a rarity in today's world that it will actually have a bigger impact than a very easy marketing piece. I tell people, tell my students all the time, write thank you notes to people. I Mm -hmm. said, nobody does that anymore. And it doesn't need to be a big, it's not what you say, it's the fact that you took the time to, to say, you know, Thanks for having coffee with me today. Uh, I'll be back in touch in a few months, something like that. That's all you have to say. But it really, it really has an impact. And I think I've gotten too good at that because now I have students sending me handwritten notes. <laughs> well, that, that often. says the proof is in the pudding. So that's working out really well for for them as well, which is great. Um, yeah. Now, yeah. Jermaine, in the cycle of any business. Isn't there a time, though, when people do need to figure out that in order to grow, they will need to share some ownership? Not always, but what would be maybe some indicators when it is time to bring in some outside capital or outside investors? Any general guidelines on that? Oh, that's a tough one. The what I'd say serial entrepreneurs who've done several companies, what they do is they start uh, cultivating potential investors long before mm-hmm. they actually need the money. That way, those potential investors get to follow how the business is doing. And a lot of them will, will give you advice without any uh, ownership in the company. Because uh, they want you to, they want you to be successful enough that you can come to them and let them participate in uh, in the the high potential growth. And what you really want to look for is when do you reach the point where you say, you know, if I had another, let's say, half million dollars, so I could hire three more salespeople and really get them out hustling in this market. I could really make sales go. That's the time when you want to really consider getting the outside money. It's when when you've got a lot of potential. And you don't want to get outside money just because you need to pay the bills. You want to get outside money so you can really make this thing take off. And you probably will be... If you start thinking about that early on, you'll probably be able to identify when you're about to reach that point. And also, you can always go out and ask these potential investors, mm-hmm. do you think I'm ready? There's a uh, an organization here in town called Growth X. I really like their approach because basically what they do is they'll be glad to talk to you anytime about what you're doing, but they don't invest until they say you're ready to really take off. And then what they do is they invest and they give you lots of guidance. I mean, they get really involved in what you're doing because if they say, we want you to be successful because Mm -hmm. that's how we become successful. And if you're going to get outside money, you want somebody with that kind of an attitude. You don't want somebody who's just going to give you the money and say, okay, Come back in five years and give me 10 times what I gave you. Uh, you want somebody who can do introductions for you, who has expertise that you need. Uh, you want to choose your investors very, very carefully because you don't just want money. I mean, yeah, you need the money. What you need is their connections and their advice. That's the part that's mm-hmm. going to really make So it makes successful. them a partnership that is not just so, a financial partner, but actually a partner in growth. 
Right. Yeah. That's that's what you want to look for. Now, of course, you know, we all make mistakes, but that's the way you want to start out. And that'll lead you. You'll waste a lot less time looking for money then because you start looking for people who like what you're doing. And if you start putting the word out, uh, there are a lot of ways you can find out uh, who's interested in investing in the kind of thing you're doing. Uh, you just have to get the word out. If you're in Nashville, the Nashville Capital Network is a good place to go for that because those guys, they keep their fingers in what's going on around here. And actually, we helped start that uh, when it got started. Our current chancellor at Vanderbilt was the provost when we started the Nashville Capital Network, and he committed a chunk of money from his budget to help us get started. So he really helped us get that thing going. And they, you know, you just go there and get them to tell you who you ought to be talking to. And I imagine that just about every sizable city is going to have organization or organizations that are like that. They're a lot more common now than they used to be because right now entrepreneurship is a very hot topic. So lots of people are trying to do stuff with it. Uh, I don't know how many are doing really good things, but my guess is if you get a lot of people thinking about it and trying to figure out how to start new companies, stuff's going to start happening. You know, I mean, it's, that's just the way uh, those things go. So, uh, well, that's fantastic. Anyway, Jermaine, it amazes me how fast time goes when I'm chatting with you. Would you mind sharing your observations about facing setbacks? You know, when you're building a business and you've hit a roadblock, either financial mm-hmm. or the market is not responding the way you want to, a key employee has left. Not so much uh, techniques, but what are the attitudes that you try to encourage people to take when they hit that point where it's almost a desperation and, and they're tempted to give up? Well, what's really smart is to get uh, set up an advisory board. These are people who can give you advice. And there are several benefits to having an advisory board. It, these are people who could probably help you deal with things like that. But also, you need somebody to talk to sometimes. You know, you say, God, this thing is just, it looks to me like just falling apart. I got to get somebody to help me get back on track. An advisory board is good for that. They can just, you know, you can just go vent and deal with them. But that's, that's a very smart thing to do. In fact, we have a graduate here of ours who he graduated long before I came here. He's got a little consulting business where he helps people do that. Uh, he helps them find the right kind of people for their advisory board. Now, an advisory board is different than a board of directors. A board of directors uh, has a legal responsibility to try to keep you from going under. A board of advisors, they just give you advice. So it's pretty easy to get somebody to decide to help give you advice. If you ask them to be on your board of directors, they've got to think about that because they then have a legal liability for the decisions that they make. Whereas an advisory board, those are people who can help you. And uh, and you can and, and if you're setting up an advisory board, it's smart to get somebody to help you say, okay, how do I manage my advisory board? Because you want to set expectations correctly for the people you get on that advisory board. You know, how much time they have to spend with you, the kinds of things you want them to really focus on, all of that. And then how long is your term going to be? Because that way, 
everybody knows what to expect and the advisors you need probably will change as your company grows. So you may want to get different people than what you have in the initial uh, advisory board. Uh, so it's a, that's a good way to deal with the issue that you just mentioned because when you're running a business and it's your company, a lot of stuff floats up to you and sometimes it can be just overwhelming. So having advisors and that you can just go to and say, how do you think I should handle this? Uh, is, right. is really helpful. So for an entrepreneur that feels like she has got all the answers, she pretty quickly figures out she does not, or he understands I've got to use other people to help me get through this log jam. And that is a courageous thing. It's yeah. not a lack of ability or drive. It's smart and courageous to have other people. Oh, yeah. Well, everybody's got limitations. And I've heard several people say, when I have a meeting of my top managers, I want to be the dumbest guy in the room. And that's that's kind of a, uh, that sounds not very smart, but actually it really is smart because you want a finance person who knows a heck of a lot more about finance than you do. You want a marketing person who is much more plugged into marketing than you are. And your job is to keep all those pieces moving together. And their job is to get their piece of it really working well. When you start, you have to do all of that. But as soon as you can, you need to start picking people to fill different slots. Uh, and that's uh, that's very critical as your company grows, Makes is to surround yourself with the right people. There's a fellow here. He's in our Spanish-speaking community. I had him come over and, and do lunch with our students. He imports foods from Central America. So he's got a couple of buyers who live in Central America out scouring around to buy food. They ship it here. He distributes it out of Nashville. His entire top management group, and he's not a huge company. He's got, I don't know, 50 or 100 employees. But his top management group, every one of them has an MBA. Uh, and he said, a year ago, he took his family and they traveled around to several countries around the world because they, they like traveling. And he said, while I was gone, my sales went up. Mm. And that's the way you want to be thinking is <laughs> you want to have a team that is so good that when you're not there, everything works just like that is fantastic. Wanted to work. Well, Jermaine, I, I always hate to end a conversation with you, but I think we've probably hit that point. I want to say thank yeah. you, uh, not just for me personally, because I'm inspired by the person that you are, as well as all the things that you've done, but also on behalf of all of our listeners, because there are so many nuggets of true wisdom in what you've shared with us here today. And I look forward to doing a bit of a recap here as the next part of the podcast. So on behalf of everybody at the Action Catalyst, thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.